To start us off with the third parak of Yeshua, here is B.B. King of Blessed Memory. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming far to carry me home. Well, I look over Jordan and what did I see? Coming far to carry me home. Well, a man of angels coming after me, coming far to carry me that was a piece of B.B. King's 1960 version of the old spiritual Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. The first verse, in case you didn't hear the lyrics, refers to looking over the Jordan to see a band of angels coming to carry me home. This chapter of Yeshua tells the story of B'nai Israel crossing the Jordan to the Promised Land. The image of this moment has remained poignant for believers until today. The story has been adapted to later historical circumstances. We'll see how shortly, and we're going to return to this song too, but first, the chapter. In the beginning, Yoshua and the nation set out from the Shittim to the Yardin, the Jordan River, and they camp out there for three days. Yoshua's officers instruct the people to follow at a distance as the Kohanim carry the Arun Brit, the Ark of the Covenant. Yoshua instructs the people to prepare to see miraculous events, and he instructs the Kohanim to set out with the Arun. God then promises Yehoshua that he will raise his stature, Yehoshua's stature, in the eyes of the people with this miracle. Yehoshua tells the people that the splitting of the Yarden, which they're about to witness, should serve as a sign of their coming success in conquering the land and dispossessing the peoples of the land. The Kohanim proceed with the Aron, and the river splits. It stops on either side of them at a great distance, and they're standing on dry land in the middle of the river. The people follow, and they cross into the Promised Land. So what made the writer of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot think of this story? The writer was a man named Wallace Willis, a slave in Oklahoma, then known as Indian Territory, and he wrote this song sometime before 1862. Willis was a slave belonging to a member of the Choctaw tribe. White Americans considered the Choctaw to be one of the, quote, five civilized tribes, they were civilized in that they adopted important elements of the white lifestyle. They spoke English, they practiced Christianity, and of course, they purchased black people as plantation slaves. Despite being civilized in this viewpoint, these were the five tribes that were driven out of their homeland in the southeast United States by President Jackson in the late 1830s. During the war, the Choctaw sided with the Confederacy. At the end of the war, the tribe admitted its former slaves as full members of the tribe. They became known as the Choctaw Freedmen. Willis became one such member. His song became an important anthem of black Americans. It was revived during the Civil Rights era as it recalled the struggle against slavery. And curiously, I don't know the history of this, it's also become the anthem of the English national rugby team. It's been covered by almost everybody. Notable versions include those by B.B. King, as you heard before, by Elvis, by Johnny Cash, by The Grateful Dead, and by Beyonce. So it's not clear what inspired Willis to think of the Jordan River. Some historians suggest that he thought of the Jordan when he saw the Red River, a tributary of the Mississippi that runs through Oklahoma. However, despite whatever his original intentions may have been, the song took on a special meaning for many former slaves and for survivors of the Underground Railroad, who 
who escaped slavery during the 19th century. Many of these people understood the Ohio River to be their River Jordan. You see, the Ohio River divides Kentucky, which was a Union slave state, from Ohio, which was a free state. As such, it became a popular escape route for slaves fleeing the South. In fact, it became a finish line. Getting to the Ohio River, making the treacherous journey, and reaching the river meant you had, in some sense, reached freedom, crossing the river into the free state of Ohio. Two of the most important novels about slavery in America, Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe and Beloved by Toni Morrison, feature scenes of slave mothers escaping across the Ohio River with their children. For the former slaves who embraced Swing Low Sweet Chariot and who saw its message of spiritual liberation as recalling their flight from slavery, the image in the first verse was unmistakable for them. Looking over the Jordan, for them, meant looking over the Ohio River, where they once looked and saw the band of angels coming to carry them home. There has been a great deal written about the comparison of the Ohio and the Jordan Rivers, and for more you can see a book called River Jordan by Carnegie Mellon history professor Joe Trotter. Now I'm going to fast forward 130 years to the Israeli-Arab peace process of the 1990s, a time of great drama and great emotion. And... Everybody following the events of the peace process had some sort of opinion on it. I'm going to talk about one book that was written in 1998. First, the biography of the author. Shmuel Segev was born in Tiveria in 1926. As a young man, he was an intelligence officer, and as an adult, he became a prominent journalist. He wrote for Israeli publications for over 60 years, covering the Arab world. He also spent some time living and writing in Winnipeg, Manitoba. In 1998, he wrote a book called Crossing the Jordan, Israel's Hard Road to Peace. It was his story of the Middle East peace process, beginning from the earliest years of the state and proceeding until the middle of the 1990s, during the Oslo talks between Israel and the Palestinians. Segev has a great deal of criticism, both for Bibi Netanyahu, the then and now prime minister, and for Yasser Arafat, the president of the Palestine Liberation Organization. But ultimately, he provides cautious optimism for the prospects of the peace process. The title for Segev's book, Crossing the Jordan, is a very intriguing choice. Of course, it refers to some actual historical events. In 1994, Israel concluded its first-ever peace treaty with its nation-state neighbor across the Jordan, the Kingdom of Jordan. It was signed by Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and King Hussein. And earlier on in the process with the Palestinians, the PLO, during the late 60s and early 70s, was also based in Jordan. So in fact, the peace process did involve crossing the Jordan. However, this is obviously quite subversive. For in this case, in contrast with the crossing in the biblical case, the Israelites were going in the opposite direction. And now, instead of crossing to make war, they were crossing in pursuit of peace. So nearly 20 years and several wars later, when we look back at a book like this, and especially today in the midst of another terrifying wave of murderous violence, the end to the conflict looks even farther off than it did in 1998. Some people look back at this era and yearn for a return to negotiations like those we saw in the 1990s while others 
look at that and see the root of all evil. However, one way or another, it's instructive, it's interesting to remember how in the 1990s, people like Segev, veteran Israeli observers and observers all over the world, looked at the peace process and saw a seminal, almost biblical breakthrough, this momentous occasion in the history of Israel. For them, it was another miraculous crossing of the Jordan. That's all for this chapter. Next time, we'll take on chapter 4, in which Yehoshua and the nation memorialize the miracle at the Jordan.